When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Campsite Media. Hello? What is this? What do you want me to say? What is going on here? Oh, it's just, um... Chameleon. Chameleon. Okay. You're listening to Chameleon. A production of Campside Media. Oh. <laughs> A word of warning. At the end of this episode, there's some explicit discussion that you might not want kids to hear. So there's this thing called an evidence board. It's also called, and I think this is the better name, a crazy wall. You've no doubt seen something like this in a movie or on TV. An evidence board is a wall or a whiteboard filled with pictures, notes, newspaper clippings, that kind of stuff. And then those items are connected together with string, usually different colors of string, to show the various intersections and relationships. An evidence board is a cliche of the crime thriller genre. This bad guy connects to this bad guy, who connects to this other bad guy, and that bad guy connects to the ultimate bad guy. Homeland, True Detective, you know, TV shows like that. They had evidence boards. Hell, there was even an evidence board in an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I am so stressed out, I feel like I'm having a panic attack. You wanna talk about stress? You wanna talk about stress? Okay? I've stumbled onto a major company conspiracy, Mac. How about that for stress? What the hell are you talking about? This company is being bled like a stuck pig, Mac, and I got a paper trail to prove it. Check this out. Take a look at this! In the Always Sunny scene, which turned into an internet meme afterwards, Charlie then shows Mac his enormous evidence board. Various papers fill two walls, with lines and arrows connecting everything. The scene is meant to be a parody. You shouldn't take anyone seriously who uses an evidence board. Really. No real investigator uses one, as far as I know. I worked with a journalist once who made an evidence board for a story he was researching. He covered a wall in our newsroom with photos and notes. We all made fun of him. If I'd been like that journalist, put together an evidence board and gone all homeland on Operation Botox, I would have gathered pictures of all the main characters. Emil, his girlfriend Kim Milko, his friend Mary Green, his brother Gus, the FBI agents, Dennis Lau and Chuck Rowe, the informant, Michelle, and on and on. I know, I know. There's a lot of characters in this story. And then I take a photo of Paul Pata and stick it up there. Paul's the Las Vegas lawyer and former federal prosecutor who sued Emil over some defamatory reviews on the internet. And then I'd connect all these people with various colors of string. And you know what? You know who, I suspect, would have more string leading to him than anyone else? The person connected to so many people in this story? Yeah, Paul Pata, the lawyer. I'm Trevor Aronson. From Campside Media, this is episode eight of High Rollers, season two of Chameleon. If there's one indelible character from the TV show Breaking Bad, other than Walter White, 
the chemistry teacher turned meth cook. It's Saul Goodman, the sleazy lawyer in the show. You may remember the ads for Saul's legal services. In one, Saul's in a suit, standing in his office, law books behind him on a bookshelf, and on the other wall, an enormous reproduction of the U.S. Constitution. But what Saul's saying doesn't sound like the stuff of the Founding Fathers. No. Saul's making an ambulance chaser pitch. But Saul, how can I sue these people and institutions? I have no grounds. Do me a favor. Let me answer that question in person. Better call Saul. Now, I'm no marketing expert, so I'm not sure who I am to judge, really. But my general thinking, my gut on this, and go with me for a minute, is that if you're a real-life lawyer, you wouldn't want to invite comparisons to Better Call Saul Goodman, right? But here's a TV ad for Paul Pata. A former federal prosecutor, Paul Pata, will fight for you. When you've only got one call, you better call Paul. In this whole story, in the whole FBI operation that is Operation Botox, Paul's been something of a ghost. You've heard about him. People are talking about him. But he's never around. Emil and his girlfriend Kim had claimed Paul confronted them while out one night in Las Vegas. Something Paul denies ever happened. He came right up to Emil and I, and he started uh, kind of pointing his finger into Emil's chest. And he's like, hey, like, whatever. I can't remember, you know, just antagonizing him. And then he said, I fucked your woman, and she loved it. There have been moments where Paul's been very much a part of the story, though. Like when Michelle and Dennis tried to get Emil to hire a hitman during the undercover sting. That hitman was supposed to assault Paul. But Emil never committed and never handed over any money to hire a hitman. But getting Emil to agree to a hit on Paul was, seemingly, really important to the FBI. Here's Michelle on the FBI's recording begging Dennis to tell Chuck he did everything he could to get Emil to hire the hitman. Yeah, yeah I will. You pushed it. You pushed it. As I went through all the FBI undercover recordings from Operation Botox, I discovered there was another scene in which Paul was very important. This time, when Dennis and Michelle met Emile's girlfriend, Kim, to talk to her about laundering money. They were at a Starbucks in Las Vegas. This Starbucks, it's just a standalone building on a commercial block with a gas station next door. Outside, there are a few tables for customers to sit at. And Kim, Dennis, and Michelle are sitting at one of them. Dennis is telling Kim about his happy ending massage parlors and his money laundering needs. So, can you handle 25? Yeah. Okay. And I'll give you eight points for it. Okay. That's Kim and Dennis in the FBI recording, negotiating the specifics of Kim's first alleged money laundering transaction. As they're discussing all this, a young woman named Ashley approaches the table. She and Kim had worked together at a diet clinic called Trim Care, but Kim doesn't recognize her right away. Kim? Yeah, how are you? How are you? Right, Ashley from Trim Care. Oh my gosh, how are you? Now I work for Paul Pata. This is Kim, after I'd asked her about this encounter. When she came up to me, she was like, hey, and that's, you know, she's like, hi, Kim, and she was so abrupt, and then she's like, how are you? I work, I'm like, why would she, I, like, uh, that, that to me is just the oddest thing in the world. Like, she was, who would say to me, oh, I work at Paul Pata's office, you know? And I'm like, oh, okay. Like, she, she would have no reason to connect us. When I heard this on the FBI's recording, I thought, 
Paul being the subject of the FBI's hitman plot, his assistant showing up as Kim is talking to an undercover agent. It's weird, right? What are the chances this was just a random encounter? Could this really just be coincidence? Or is it evidence of something? So I wanted to talk to Paul to ask about this. He wouldn't call me back, so I went to his office in Las Vegas without an appointment. When I pulled up, I saw Paul's name in big letters on the side of the building. Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm Jamie. Hey, Jamie, I'm Trevor Aronson. Hi, nice to meet you. So I've, uh, I've corresponded with Paul in the past, and okay. I'm working on a, a podcast series okay. about this case called Operation Botox. Okay. That um, involved uh, a guy named Emil Buari, who Paul later sued for, or previously sued for, for libel. And so I'm hoping to talk to him about kind of a breadth of questions about this particular case. Okay, so... Paul's assistant sat down next to me to take some notes. She asked me if Paul knew why I wanted to interview him. Um, so, I mean, Paul, Paul knows all about this. Mm-hmm. I, I've sent him emails asking him to participate. He's previously corresponded with mm-hmm. me. So, so now you want to set it up. I'm Please. here through Saturday. Um, and so the reason I'm showing up unannounced, and I apologize for that, mm-hmm. is um, I've been trying to reach Paul. He's not been returning my calls. Was he open to this idea, or does, is he not going to have any idea where I'm coming from? He'll know exactly what this is all about. Mm-hmm. I, I think he doesn't want to do it, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. um, because he hasn't responded to any of my previous inquiries. Um, okay. So, you know, I guess what I'm trying to do is make every, you know, effort. every effort to try okay. to get him to, to talk to me. Give me a sec. Okay. Right. Mean, Paul's assistant then went back into the office to talk to Paul. She came back a few minutes later, alone. Okay, so I just spoke to him. He wants me to pass him a full detailed message of everything that we just spoke about. Okay. Um, and send it to him this okay. afternoon. Right and he said he'll consider it and okay. let me know. Okay. So when he lets me Neither know, Paul nor his assistant ever got back to me. Though a lawyer for Paul did respond in writing to a list of questions I sent. So since Paul wouldn't talk to me for this podcast, I researched Paul. And his past is pretty interesting. More after the break. You're listening to Camellia from Campside Media. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. You're listening to Camellia from Campside Media. Before the break, I said I'd researched Paul to figure out what he was about. So I'll summarize. Paul went to law school, got a job at the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., He then took a job at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Las Vegas. Then, he decided to go on his own, start his own practice. So far, pretty normal. But Paul has a way of playing himself up, 
like a salesman, kind of like his nemesis, Emil Buari. Here's Paul talking about himself on a Las Vegas podcast. There was one opening at the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Las Vegas. I applied. 800 people applied. Wow. And I got lucky. They hired me. Out of 800? Yeah. Wow. Paul had another reputation, besides his legal acumen. He was known in Las Vegas as an eligible bachelor. Here he is co-hosting a local internet talk show. But now I get to ask you the questions that we don't ask on the, the legal show because people want to know more about you. And you are single. I have had people, people have come up and said, ask, how single are you? And I don't even know that answer. We don't have to go there. But you have the best, <laughs> best hair of any attorney I've ever seen. Oh, thank you. You do, you do. So anyway, Paul, where are you from? Lawyers with Paul's pedigree, former federal prosecutors with experience at Maine Justice in Washington, D.C., often go into politics or big law jobs. But that's not what Paul did. He wanted to start his own practice. We talked about starting a practice. Um, and we had a, a very close friendship all that time. That's Ruth Cohen, one of Paul's former colleagues from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Vegas. Ruth and Paul started Cohen and Pata, with Ruth getting top name billing because she was well-known in Las Vegas. Paul and Ruth opened an office across from the Palms Casino and next to a Sonic Burger, about two miles from the Strip. As most personal injury lawyers do across the country, Ruth and Paul marketed themselves as courtroom brawlers, lawyers ready to kick ass for your injury claim. But like most personal injury lawyers, Ruth and Paul were mostly in the insurance company settlement business. Injury cases would come in, they'd negotiate, they'd settle out of court. Paul is all about the money. This is Carla Kautz, a legal assistant who worked for Ruth and Paul, expressing her opinion about Paul. He was out for the dollar, you know, to settle it as quick as he could and, you know, get the money in his pocket. She was characterizing Paul's business, personal injury law. Car accident and slip and fall cases mostly end in settlements for just about any law firm in America. And since each injury case doesn't settle for tons of money, usually, personal injury law firms generally work in bulk, a kind of legal production line, shuttling cases from injury to diagnosis and treatment to settlement, case after case after case. Before I get to what happened with Paul and Emil, I want to tell you what happened with one of those cases for Paul and Ruth Cohen. This was a big case. Lawyers call a case like this one a rainmaker. There was, of course, a movie about such a case. John Grisham's The Rainmaker. There's nothing more thrilling than nailing an insurance company. In 2012, New York hedge fund manager David Marotti said he'd been brutally beaten by security guards at a nightclub in a casino on the Las Vegas Strip. He claimed that after paying a huge tab for drinks, $10,000, security officials forced him into a room and demanded his ID and credit card. Marotti alleged that the security officials roughed him up. He suffered a concussion, and a neurosurgeon diagnosed him with a traumatic brain injury. So Marotti signed on as a client with Cohen and Pata. Around that time, Ruth decided to step back from practicing law full-time. She wasn't going to retire, but she wanted to go part-time. I'm a dinosaur. I dictate everything. But as Ruth was about to downshift professionally, she said that Paul told her that none of the firm's pending cases, including the Marathi case, had much promise for significant payouts. So Ruth signed away her remaining interest in the firm's pending cases in exchange for a $50,000 buyout payment. Then Ruth found out that Paul and another law firm he partnered with, won the Marathi case. 
A 2012 attack at a Las Vegas Strip nightclub has resulted in a $160 million jury verdict. $160 million bucks. Quite the rainmaker. And so then Ruth began to question the circumstances. Did Paul know this was going to be such a big case when he bought her out for just $50,000? Because Ruth estimates that her share of that $160 million would have been huge, $3 million in fees. Do you currently have a lawsuit against Mr. Pata? I do. This is Ruth in court. What is that for? Uh, fraud, violation of his fiduciary duties to me, elder abuse. Um, I can't think of what else. And what does that relate to? It related to our partnership. Um, Mr. Pata, well, Mr. Pata lied to me about the biggest case we ever had in the office and convinced me, because I trusted him as my partner, that I should, you know, sign away my rights to all cases that were pending because they were all small and garbage. He told me Marathi was in the toilet. Marathi went back to work. There's no financial damages. We can't get much on this case. So I agreed, and I signed this document just a few months before a firm trial date setting that I didn't know about. And then the Marathi case went to trial, the jury came back with the largest civil judgment ever in the history of Nevada for one single plaintiff. So uh, when I saw the judgment, I, I couldn't believe it. I came in the office and I confronted Mr. Pata. And he looked at me and said, you're a big girl, you could have looked it up. In response to Ruth's lawsuit, Paul said their partnership dissolution agreement spoke for itself and he denied that he deceived Ruth about any pending cases, including the Marathi case. I don't think, obviously, he realized it was going to settle for $160 million, but I think he realized that, you know, it was going to be a moneymaker, and, and, yeah, he, you know, cut her out. That was Carla Kautz, the assistant again. But that's not where things stopped with Ruth and Paul. So while he was working on the Marathi case, Paul decided he wanted to sue Emil, even though he had a rainmaker on his hands with the Marathi case, Paul was, apparently, still thinking about Emil and all those negative internet reviews. Mr. Buari made a number of statements like, you know, Paul Pata's a drunk. That's Paul in court. Paul Pata uh, frequents prostitutes and various other things that were personally embarrassing to me so that clients would call me up and say, hey, did you see this report? And so I'd have to continually explain to people that, you know, this was like a deranged person who had, you know, all kinds of issues. Um, for a variety of reasons, and I don't know why he does this, but this is what he does. And so it was personally very embarrassing to me, and also I did notice, um, and we did track, we have a tracking system within the office to see how many phone calls would come in. And when he engaged in this uh, campaign of defamation for several years, um, it, we did notice a significant decline in phone calls. Carla Kautz, the legal assistant, worked some on the lawsuit against Emil. I asked Carla what she knew about the case's background. Did he ever explain to you or anyone in the office like what this was all about? Like, why would this person be writing bad things about him on the internet? It was very vague, but it was basically, you know, regarding a woman and that um, this guy had posted the review or the comments that Paul liked prostitutes. He was an alcoholic. And Paul's big thing was that his mom saw that review. 
and got really upset about it. Well, I mean, I don't know Paul's mom, but I don't know if she's like trolling the internet for reviews about her son. And I don't know where she would come across on the internet to see that. But that's what he had told us, that his mom was just really upset about it. And that's the reason, you know, he was going after him was because his mom saw it. (laughs) The stuff about Paul's concern about his mother, it's not a joke or an exaggeration. It was very hard for my mom to read that. And it was embarrassing. But people, you know, people in your personal life, they read these things. Um, Even someone you might be on a date with would read that and think, well, does this guy go to prostitutes? It's just, it was, it was insane. But to constantly feel like you had to explain it, it started taking a toll and it it really bothered me. So you'd think that Ruth of Cohen and Pata wouldn't be involved in this lawsuit, right? This was between Emil and Paul. The thing is, Ruth was still technically with the firm when this all went down. And she didn't know anything about this lawsuit, even though her signature is on the original paperwork, as if she were the lawyer who filed it. Paul denies that he improperly used Ruth's name and signature. Do you recognize the, the font and the bold? Oh my goodness. Caption? Yes, I do. This is Ruth Cohen. She's talking about the formatting of the lawsuit's document, the font size and the bold type. This is Paul Pattis style and Paul Pattis style alone. For whatever reason, he likes all these big, dark letters. They're huge. I don't even know how to do this, but this is his style for all of his pleadings. You know what I'm talking about? This dark, see how dark it is and how big it is? That's what I'm talking about. That was his style. That's the way he did his pleadings. My pleadings do not look like that. And you never signed or were aware of this original complaint either, correct? No. And you were not aware of any motions for default judgment on that complaint because it wasn't a case you were working on, correct? I had absolutely no involvement whatsoever in this case. I did not even know it was in the office. And even though he filed a lawsuit on behalf of your firm, he didn't even make you aware of this, correct? Correct. I, I knew nothing. So if Ruth's claims are true, that would be pretty shocking. But what was even more surprising was what happened next. Paul got a hold of someone who had a real problem with Emil, his ex-wife. More after the break. You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media. You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media. So now I'm at the evidence board, the crazy wall I talked about at the beginning of this episode, and how Paul is associated with so many people in this story. I'm going to try my best not to sound like my former colleague at work, whom we all made fun of. You can be the judge of how I do. Could Paul have had something to do with the FBI taking an interest in Emil? That's been one of the main questions that's intrigued me as I've researched this case. One of the people on that crazy wall, whom we haven't talked about yet, is a woman named Carol Ann Cheney. Paul had learned through his lawsuit against Emil that Emil had allegedly written some of those defamatory reviews using an account associated with Carol Ann's email address. Before he was dating Kim, Emil was married to Carol Ann for about two years. They actually started the Buari Clinic franchise together. She was born in Japan. She has long, straight, jet black hair. Here she is on TV, back in the day, promoting the Buari Clinic. Our program consists of a a natural product that's FDA registered. It basically tricks the brain into accessing the fat as fuel in your body. According to court records, Carol Ann told Paul that she had nothing to do with the defamatory statements about him and that she suspected Emil had used her email address 
in an effort to screw her over, to make it appear that she was responsible for the defamatory comments about Paul. But that's not all she said about Emil. She also said in court records that Emil had embezzled about $2 million from their companies prior to their divorce, and that she suspected he was involved in money laundering. Carol Ann told an investigator for Paul Pata that she had hired a forensic accountant to write a report that documented what she viewed as suspicious banking activity from Emil, such as moving $5,000 to $50,000 between accounts and then withdrawing money. Carol Ann did not respond to any of my requests to talk to me for this podcast. And I should note that Emil denies that he embezzled any money or was involved in money laundering. But the timing of this conversation between Paul and Carol Ann is interesting. If you're thinking about why the FBI got interested in Emil at all. And that timing only got more interesting after I listened to Paul's former law partner, Ruth Cohen, testify against him in court. Ruth, on the witness stand, was asked what she knew about Operation Botox and Emil. The FBI got involved, but I think the FBI that got involved was Paul's friends. And Ruth's statement fits with something our investigator from the last episode, former FBI guy Jeff Danik, finds in his research. After Jeff has taken on Gus as a client, he, again, does what great investigators do. He types Paul Pata's name into Google. And one of the things he finds is a website for a group called the International Organization of Asian Crime Investigators and Specialists. The website lists Paul Pata as a legal advisor and Chuck Rowe as a member of an honorary advisory board. So they appear to know each other. I've asked Paul about this connection. In a letter from his lawyer, Paul describes his relationship with Chuck as simply professional. This whole issue is something Jeff is hesitant to talk about publicly. But I asked him about it anyway. Is that discovery and what it means something that you can talk about? Well, let me say this, that I'm very comfortable talking about what happened in the criminal case. But as far as any of the other people involved, allegedly involved, actually involved, maybe, maybe not involved, masterminds, I have no comment about that. I intend on methodically helping the lawyers get to the bottom of that in the civil case. And I had hoped that the FBI would have already done this, but they have not been accountable for their actions to figure out how this case started and who was behind it. And the reason that Jeff is squirrely here is that Gus hired him to help him out. And he's not sure what's in Gus's best interest to reveal right now. So what could have happened here? Well, we know that Carol Ann and Paul talked. And we also know that one month after Paul talked to Carol Ann, Michelle walked into the FBI's Las Vegas office and said Emil Buari had embezzled money from a business partner, and he's willing to launder money for investors. So how did Michelle come to walk into the FBI's office? And did he even walk into that office at all? Michelle, as you know, is the showstopper in Operation Botox. He made everything happen. Emil's not going to be there. I'm going to let them know. I mean, we're going to have to tell them that we are bad guys. But it was hard for me to even find Michelle's last name. The FBI always goes to great lengths to protect the identities of its informants. But then, well, I got a lucky break. Kim's lawyer had hired an investigator, a former Vegas police detective, to review the evidence in Operation Botox. And he recognized the FBI's informant. He said his real name was Michelle Benamar. So I started digging. I told you about this earlier in the series, 
I discovered that a Michelle Benamar had been arrested in 2013. I was able to get a mugshot of Michelle Benamar from the Salt Lake City arrest. So I sent the mugshot to Gus. He sent me back a voice message on WhatsApp. Hey, that's him. Kim's investigator said Michelle used to meet with another former Las Vegas detective named Jason Hahn. According to Kim's investigator, Michelle was one of Jason Hahn's informants. As a reminder, Michelle couldn't be reached for this podcast. And here's where this story starts to feel a little like a crazy wall. Jason Hahn isn't a detective anymore. Now he's a private investigator in Las Vegas, and he works for Paul Pata. Paul lists Jason Hahn on his law firm's website as, and I'm quoting, a valuable asset. And Jason Hahn is also listed as an advisor to that Asian Investigator Association, the same one Paul Pata and Chuck Rowe are listed as being affiliated with. I've asked Paul about Michelle and whether he'd ever discussed him with Jason Hahn. In a letter from his lawyer, Paul told me that he's never discussed Michelle or any informants with Jason Hahn. For his part, Jason Hahn has never responded to any of my calls or emails asking him to talk about this. But here's one more connection. The investigator that Paul hired to look into Emil, he also would have known Chuck and Dennis. Here's investigator Michael Elliott in a court hearing, being questioned by Paul's lawyer. Are you familiar with Emil Buari? I am. And how are you familiar with Mr. Buari? Well, I'm initially uh, familiar with Mr. Buari from my time at the Federal Bureau of Investigation when Mr. Buari was under investigation for money laundering. And uh, after you left the FBI and uh, you formed your company, uh, did you have a chance to provide some services in connection with uh, litigation pending against Mr. Bari? Yes, I was retained by you to be the primary investigator on the case. All this crazy wall information piques the interest of another person, the lawyer Gus hires, Benjamin Durham. That's my understanding. There was a connection between Michelle, Jason Hahn, when, they were, when he was at Las Vegas Metro. And then Jason Hahn went to work for Paul Pata. Uh, Paul Pata has had an ongoing beef, I guess you would say, with Emil. And then all of a sudden, Michelle shows up at Emil's business um, to begin this investigation. So yeah, that's my understanding. Is it possible that Paul wanted revenge against Emil for the defamatory internet reviews? I'm sure Paul would prefer the term justice. But did Paul pursue his justice only in court? through his defamation lawsuit? If you look at my crazy wall, I think you can put together a circumstantial case that Paul could have played a role in inspiring the FBI's interest in Emil Buari. Paul knew Chuck Rowe, the FBI agent. Jason Hahn, Paul's private investigator, reportedly knew Michelle Benamar, the FBI's informant. And Paul had spoken to Emil's ex-wife, Carol Ann Cheney, who alleged that Emil embezzled money from her and that he might be laundering money although this was never proven. And remember what the FBI's official explanation for how Operation Botox started was. One day, Michelle walks up to the FBI's office in Las Vegas, meets with Chuck, and says Emil had embezzled money from a business partner and is willing to launder money for investors. That, according to Chuck's FBI report, is how Operation Botox began. Is it possible that Paul Pata had a hand in this, providing information from Emil's ex-wife about the prior alleged embezzlement and the money laundering? How else would Michelle have known this information? I asked Emil what he thinks all this means 
Well, I mean, the, the evidence suggests either incredible, unbelievable coincidences, one after another after another, or that. So, I mean, the evidence suggests it's complete. It's a, it's a conspiracy. It's a real conspiracy. Yeah, a real conspiracy. <laughs> but let's assume this is true for a moment, that Paul did have a hand in getting the FBI's investigation of Emil started. Would that have been illegal? Probably not. You could even argue that Paul, as a lawyer, had an obligation to report the information from Emil's ex-wife to law enforcement. Sure, if Paul did play a role in getting the FBI interested in Emil, everything got out of hand. Other people might settle a disagreement with Fiss in a parking lot or just let it go and move on with life. But Emil? He allegedly wrote a bunch of defamatory reviews about Paul on the internet. And Paul, he didn't ignore those reviews and chalk them up to Emil's immaturity. He filed a defamation lawsuit. And then? The FBI launched a two-year undercover investigation of Emil and tried to rope in Emil's friends. The FBI shouldn't have started Operation Botox if the only information agents had about Emil came indirectly from Paul Pata, a guy who had an ongoing feud with Emil. That wouldn't have been an above-board FBI case. It would have been dirty. The FBI using its enormous power in service of a personal vendetta. So is that what happened? I don't know for sure. But there is a compelling piece of evidence to suggest that the case was dirty and that everyone working the case knew it was dirty. Michelle, the informant, ran his fake diamond scam on Emil, fleecing him of $25,000. Michelle did it with impunity, the way you might if you knew everyone working with you was dirty too. As a result of Operation Botox, Emil was charged with money laundering. And because Emil had talked about hiring a hitman to harm Paul Pata on secret FBI recordings, discussions that happened with Dennis and Michelle's encouragement, federal prosecutors succeeded in getting Emil locked up in the desert pending trial. And so while Emil was behind bars, Paul pushed forward with his defamation lawsuit in Las Vegas. He asked the judge for a default judgment against Emil and to award him millions of dollars in damages. Here's Paul in court. I mean, I think one's reputation is priceless. I've worked very hard my whole life to try to treat everyone with dignity and respect and be fair to people. And so the question really is, um, you know, what's your reputation worth? Uh, to me, it's worth an unlimited amount of money to the extent you have to put a number on it. Um, I, I would say at least, you know, I'm seeking at least $4 million, if not more. This is High Rollers. In the next episode, you'll learn how the FBI's Las Vegas office was a wellspring of problem cases. In a 32-page decision, U.S. Magistrate Judge Peggy Lean called the search warrant fatally flawed, saying the application misled the magistrate judge into believing the warrantless searches were constitutional. You'll find out what others alleged about Chuck Rowe, the FBI agent. He was obsessed with just talking about his genitals. I don't think a single class went by where he did not mention his dick and balls. And you'll hear a theory about how FBI agents can break bad. What might start as a persona or sort of acting as a bad guy can quickly turn into being a bad guy if that's kind of who you are anyway. And you realize that this is basically a free pass to sort of indulge that. Chameleon Season 2 comes from Campsite Media. 
It's hosted by me, Trevor Aronson. Our executive producers are Vanessa Grigoriadis and Adam Hoff. Alex Yablon fact-checked the series. Marco Williams also contributed to research. Mark McAdam composed the theme song. Doug Slaywin and Sam Leeds provided production support. The executive producers at Campside Media are Josh Dean, Vanessa Grigoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. If you enjoyed High Rollers, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other listeners like you find the show. And make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take me in Sin City. Take me in Sin City. When you're in Sin City, I know you's confessing your sins.